Good morning. My name is Joel. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. Please follow along in your Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, it's Mark, chapter 10, starting with verse 17. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in kindergarten through second grade, you're invited to escort your kids to the back of the room to join kids' commons inside. As you're able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat anyone, honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There's still one thing you haven't done, he told them. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this moment, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? This amazed them. But Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it's impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. This time, parents and gardens of children through second, kindergarten through second grade, you're invited to escort your kids to the kids' commons in the back of the room. Good morning. My name is Katie, and I'm on the preaching team here at Haverhill Commons, and it's great to be worshiping with you all this morning. As we open God's word, I invite you to take a moment to pause and to recenter yourself before the Lord. I'll close us in a few moments in prayer. Father, as we take this time to sit with and hear your word, I pray that you would encourage us, challenge us, and empower us as we seek your will. It's in your holy and powerful name we pray. Amen. So when I was in college, I had the amazing opportunity to spend a semester studying in Orvieto, a small city perched on top of a hill in central Italy. It was easily the best three months of my life. There were about 22 of us living together in a working monastery. We lived in one half of the building while the nuns lived in the other. And we were fortunate enough to take several group excursions for our classes, traveling to Rome, Siena, Florence, all of these large cities with miles of museums and churches and historical landmarks. We also visited some more rural sites, harvesting grapes in a vineyard, picking olives in an olive grove, 
But my favorite place that we visited on one of our outings was Assisi. I didn't know much about Assisi before we arrived, other than it was the hometown of St. Francis of Assisi, but it was one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. Maybe it was the views from the olive grove we walked down, or the small windy roads in town, or the crisp whitewashed brick and stucco walls that overwhelmingly made up the architecture throughout the city. I'm not really sure, but whatever it was, immediately I felt a sense of peace. And while we were there, I learned of another lesser-known Catholic saint who also lived in Assisi, St. Clair. And today just so happens to also be All Saints Day in the church calendar, a day of remembrance for all the saints that have come before us in church history. So it's a fun coincidence that we're talking a little about St. Clair today. Clair was an enthusiastic young girl. She was born in Assisi to a wealthy family. Her mother was a devoutly faithful woman who taught Claire and her sisters about Jesus and the importance of prayer. Claire was supposed to be married to a man at the ripe old age of 12, but Claire convinced her parents to let her wait until she turned 18 before they married her off. Before she turned 18, Claire heard St. Francis preach and was so overwhelmed with a desire to dedicate her life to Christ that she decided to leave home sell all of her possessions, and became the first woman to join the Franciscan monks. A few weeks later, one of her younger sisters followed her example and came to join her. And over time, they had enough women come join them that they were able to start their own convent or religious community, all living together at the Church of San Damiano. Now, eventually, her order of nuns came to be known as the Poor Clares, because they maintained a vow of extreme poverty. Claire and her sisters were so devoted to the Lord that they didn't want anything to distract them from their love for him. Anyone who joined the poor Claires would sell all of their possessions, and any money they earned would go to those in need outside the convent. The sisters themselves would then walk around barefoot, sleep on the floor, wear sackcloths, and beg for all of their food. They also cared for the sick in the city, including those who others would refuse to touch. And Claire would wash her sister's feet each night when they returned from healing others and begging for food. They lived in such poverty that many church leaders tried to convince Claire to ease up on her poverty vows. When one pope tried yet again to ask Claire to relax the vow, she responded with, they say that we are too poor but can a heart which possesses the infinite God be truly called poor? I need to be absolved from my sins, but I do not wish to be absolved from the obligation of following Jesus. As strict as their vows were, noble women from all over Italy and out into Europe were so moved by the joyful spirit of Claire and her sisters that they began establishing even more convents throughout the country dedicated to following the order of the poor Claire's. Now, as we continue in our sermon series, Jubilee, Recalibrating for the Common Good, we see in the passage that Joel read for us that Jesus has a conversation with a rich young ruler. And while the poor Claire's jumped at the chance to give away everything they owned, this young man has a very different response. Now, before we jump in, I want to say this passage is a tricky one. I talked to a few seminary friends about it this week, and everyone agreed that it is not easy. 
It feels pretty clear cut at first read through, but it involves a pretty radical invitation from Jesus that can make us feel really uncomfortable. So my hope is that together and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can navigate through some of that discomfort and maybe even have the courage to be honest about why it makes us uncomfortable and hopefully find some clarity about what Jesus is calling each of us to do. Now at this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is traveling with his disciples towards Jerusalem on his way to the city where he will be arrested and crucified. And along the way, a young man comes up to Jesus and asks him a question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which honestly is a fair question. It's obvious that this young man has heard some information about Jesus, has maybe even heard Jesus preach and teach, so he wants to know what Jesus thinks. And at this time, many Jewish people would have believed that they could earn God's favor by reading the Torah and doing good deeds. But we fall into this same trap too, don't we? We think, maybe if I just follow this checklist, hit all the boxes, pray the prayer, I'm good to go. Eternal life secured. We become so focused on what happens to us next when we die that we forget about the invitation Jesus has for us to live a richer, fuller life here and now. Because if Jesus's goal was just for us to be saved, why are we all still here living out the remainder of our lives on earth? There has to be a greater purpose for our time here than just seeking out our own personal salvation. So the young man has been operating under this same assumption that all he needs to do is check the boxes. And yet he's also begun to feel like maybe he's missing something. So he seeks out Jesus. And Jesus's response to him is more or less what he probably expected most rabbis to say. He says, to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. It almost seems like Jesus is giving the textbook answer, doesn't it? You know the commandments, so follow them. Except if you take a look at the commandments Jesus mentions here, you might notice that he's swapped out one commandment for a new one and that he's completely missed a few others. And not just any few. He leaves out all of the first four commandments, all of which address our relationship to God. Now, I think Jesus does this because he's trying to communicate something important. He first replaces the command, you shall not covet, with you must not cheat anyone. It's possible that this replacement, Jesus is acknowledging the fact that the man is very wealthy and therefore may have enough wealth that he has no need to covet his neighbor's possessions. He has more than most other people, so he doesn't have to be jealous or long for what they have. So instead, Jesus encourages the man to consider how he became so wealthy. Has he cheated someone out of what was rightfully theirs or taken advantage of his neighbors, exploiting them for his own economic gain? And while it might seem like an oversight to not mention the commandments related to our relationship with God, I think Jesus' purpose in not mentioning them is actually highlighting something about the rich young ruler's understanding of his faith. True obedience is not outward displays of compliance to the commandments. 
Rather, it flows out of us after an internal transformation that occurs when our hearts are fully oriented towards God. Jesus choosing not to mention the commandments about God is a reminder to the rich young ruler that he is actually the one who is forgetting something very important in his quest for eternal life. A reminder that while he's doing the right things, he hasn't had to really trust God for his well-being. One of the biggest challenges of wealth is the feeling of self-reliance that it gives us. Wealth is the golden ticket that gives you the means to do anything, open any door, overcome any obstacle all by yourself. And yet the only way to actually get into heaven is to admit that you can't do it all by yourself. But the young man doesn't pick up on the hint that Jesus is giving him. Instead, he responds with, Teacher, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Now, Jesus doesn't contradict him, but instead, looking at the man, Jesus feels genuine love and compassion towards him. This is the only place in Mark's gospel where we are told of Jesus loving a specific person. I think Jesus sees that the man truly does want to do the right thing and has compassion towards him because he knows the man's heart. He doesn't look down on him, judging him for his wealth, even though that would have been easy to do, especially depending on how he gained it all. But instead, he challenges him to step into a deeper understanding of what it truly means to love God and love others. He says to the ruler, there is still one thing you haven't done. He told him, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And with this statement, Jesus is asking the man to make a choice. A choice to either continue living with a divided heart, loving his money and possessions, unable to love the Lord with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and therefore forfeiting eternal life, or to choose to love God and God alone, to be like Claire and to choose to live out of his joy, not his fear and discomfort, to accept the gift of abundant and eternal life freely offered to him and forego anything that distracts him from full-hearted devotion to God. And this is not the only time that we see this choice laid out in scripture. In Matthew 6:24, Jesus says, "No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money." And in 1 John 3:16 and 17, we get a picture of what full-hearted devotion to God truly looks like, as John tells us, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Of the 38 parables in the New Testament, 17 of them are related to possessions and giving. Over 2,100 verses in the New Testament mention something related to either wealth and material resources or giving to and caring for our neighbors. That's roughly 26% of the entire New Testament. So it's clear that this is a topic Jesus cares deeply about. 
Now, Jesus' response communicates to the man that eternal life is not something he can inherit by checking off a list of good deeds. Abundant and eternal life is freely given to us by God, who calls us to freely give of ourselves to others here and now as an outpouring of our love for him. Well, at this point, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. And it's clear from his sadness that the man cares about his salvation and about Jesus' words to him, but it's also clear that his wealth and possessions have a firm grip on his heart and will continue to be an obstacle in his relationship with God. Giving away all of his possessions would mean losing something he considers to be great, It means losing financial security and comfort, losing his status as a wealthy man, and all of the power and privilege that comes with it. Maybe it even means losing his friends and family who might want nothing to do with him without his wealth. Losing his community, his identity, it's possible he fears that all he is is his money, and he doesn't have the courage to test that theory. Following Jesus meant laying down his life as he knew it, It meant no longer serving the master of wealth. And in the end, that cost of discipleship was too high for him to bear. He was sad about it. Jesus was sad about it. Maybe we're even sad about it. The cost was too high, and the price he'll pay for his choice is higher still. After the man leaves, Jesus continues speaking to his disciples about the dangers of wealth, saying, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? This amazed them. But Jesus said again, Dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at Jesus' words as they directly countered their understanding of wealth and poverty. The cultural assumption at the time and often even in our time, was that riches were a sign of God's favor and poverty a sign of divine judgment. Yet Jesus is turning their views upside down, recalibrating them and reminding them of the great reversal that will be ushered in through the final coming of the kingdom of God. So the disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. Jesus reminds them, just as he told the rich young ruler, your salvation is not up to you or the good deeds you do. No matter how much money you have, you can't buy it, because salvation is a gift, freely and openly given by God to all who will accept him, and through their love for him, show that love to those around them. Now, I mentioned earlier that all my seminary friends agreed that this passage is a tricky one. Well, this is where it gets really tricky. What do we do with this passage today? When I was looking up some resources to learn more and dive deeper into this passage, I came across several sermons and devotions from some fairly well-known preachers, and every single one of them had some version of Jesus may have asked this man to give up everything he owned, but that doesn't mean he's asking us to do that. He must have just known that this man's particular idol was his money and possessions. 
It's pretty clear from the way they talk about this passage that they know what I'm sure we're all feeling right now. Thinking about what Jesus' words to the rich young ruler means for us is really, really uncomfortable. And I mean, I know I don't want to sell all of my clothes and my car and my stuff. I like having my own apartment and being able to host my friends for viewing parties of The Bachelor. I love the independence that I get from being able to drive myself around and not having to beg for my food. And yet, in spite of that discomfort, I do think that Jesus' words to the rich young ruler are meant to be an invitation, as well as a warning for us too. Now, I know I'm not as experienced as any of those preachers whose sermons I read, but if we can't even consider that Jesus might mean for us to take him literally, perhaps that means that our particular idol is also our money and possessions. I don't think that we can disregard Jesus' words completely from our own lives. And he is unmistakably talking about money and resources, all of the forms of privilege that we've been talking about throughout this series. And we can't soften the edges so that we're off the hook. Whether we like it or not, I think Jesus is calling us to examine our hearts and consider how our wealth, our status, and comfort might be pulling our attention away from our love of God and, by extension, our love of our neighbor. There's a website called the World Inequality Database, and on this site you can enter your salary, and it will show you where your salary falls compared to other salaries in your country and across the world. I would wager to guess that most of us have a pretty skewed sense of how wealthy we are. I know I do. Charles Schwab, an investment corporation, surveyed 1,000 Americans earlier this year, and 48% of them said they think it takes $2.2 million to be considered wealthy. That same 48% of people that were surveyed had an average net worth of $560,000. Now, I don't know about you, but even the $560,000 sounds pretty wealthy to me. And when I saw that, I thought, well, my salary is going to be really low on that inequality database. But boy, was I wrong. I fell into the top 34% of earners in the U.S. and the top 7% of earners around the world. That was a pretty strong reality check. Now, when Matt told me about this sermon series, I was thrilled because it's based on the book Subversive Witness by Dominique Gilliard, and I am a huge Dominique fan. He works for our denomination, and Matt and I saw him across the room at one of our denominational conferences, and I'll admit that I fangirled pretty hard. You can ask Matt about it later. Well, in Subversive Witness, when he talks about this passage, Dominique says, Jesus ultimately called the rich young ruler to understand that he as is also the case with you and me, was blessed to be a blessing. Faithfully following Jesus requires us to ask, is the gospel still good news when it costs me something? Moreover, is the gospel of Jesus Christ still good news when it costs me everything? And C.S. Lewis similarly talks about how we should use our resources, saying, I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not all pinch or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. 
There ought to be things we would like to do and cannot because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Now, the wealth and the possessions that the rich young ruler had and that we all have are not bad things. And Jesus could have asked the man to destroy them all if that were the case, but he didn't. He asks him to give them away. Because the problem comes when we are not so transformed by God's gracious gift to us that we turn them into idols. Idols of comfort and stability. Idols that blind us from the needs of those around us as we seek to accumulate more and more wealth for the sake of ourselves. Jesus doesn't take just to take. He always takes to give us something better. So when he tells us to sell all that we have and give it to the poor, it's not so that we ourselves will be poor, although we might be materially poor. It's because he wants us to experience true riches in a way that we can't when we're clinging on to something counterfeit, such as our money and possessions for dear life. So whatever your wealth is to you, what is it that is keeping you from giving it up? from choosing to use it to love those around you? Is your heart divided and distracted, keeping you from fully committing to following Jesus? Now, most churches at some point in their service will have a moment where they invite people to give an offering of money. Here at Haverhill Commons, as we did earlier this morning, we like to think about our tithes and offerings in three different categories, not just our treasure, but our time and our talents as well. And I think that framework can be a helpful one to use as we consider what this passage means for us. So first of all, where is your wealth? Maybe you truly don't have a lot of excess possessions or wealth, but you do have a lot of free time that you guard fiercely so that you can spend it doing things primarily for yourself. Or maybe you don't have much monetary treasure, but you do have a skill set that could be used to benefit a need that you see in your community, except you only use it to serve your family and close friends. Or maybe Jesus's words to the rich young ruler do apply more directly to you. And thinking about giving even a little bit more money away each month makes you squirm, even though you know you could make do with a great deal less money than you have right now. I think if we're being honest, we're all a lot more like the rich young ruler than we want to admit. And we try to let ourselves off the hook by giving away only our leftovers, thinking rather than giving up something that we think we need, when what we really need is Jesus. So we choose the offering that's easy and walk away sad, missing out on the life that Jesus is offering as we hold on to what Jesus is asking us to give away. Now, whatever it is that you're holding on tightly to, Jesus is inviting you to go and give it away. Just as he gave everything away for us, because he never asks us to do what he hasn't already done. Whether it's your time, your talents, or your treasure that is holding you captive, Jesus wants to free you and empower you to participate with him in helping to restore the broken systems, communities, and people of this earth in thanksgiving for God's great love for each of us. Would you pray with me?